went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them that Jesus had said, or what he had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany, of course, was, oh, I suppose, maybe three to five miles from Jerusalem, and Bethany was one of the places that Jesus uh, found recline or repose. Uh, there were people who lived there that were very dear friends of him. Some scholars say they very well could have been blood kin. Uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Uh, Jesus had been for the previous, I don't know exactly, but it was somewhere between three to six months before this, Jesus had been hiding out, literally hiding out, in what was called the Transjordan region, on the other side of the Jordan River in an area called Perea. He'd been hiding out there because things were politically hot for him. Jesus was fomenting such a following. Uh, the crowds had been growing exponentially uh, as Jesus would perform miracles and his teaching was such as uh, many people said they had never heard before. And so the crowd had grown in the Galilee and in Judea to such a point that the religious leaders and the political leaders of Judea were unnerved by him. See, this was a part of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was really a fulcrum, I, I suppose, one of the major fulcrums in the development of political states in human history, a fulcrum that shifted us from utter barbarism to civility uh, in our conquest of other people, and maybe not civility as we know it now, but 2,000 years ago in that context, it was a radical civility for an empire to go into an area and instead of subjugating a people or killing a people or enslaving a group of people, uh, they would make a deal with these little nation states within their empire that if they would be faithful, if they would pay their taxes, if they would not cause problems, then they could maintain certain autonomy, even political autonomy, but especially distinctions like religion and culture. The Roman Empire called this Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And the deal that they cut with the political leaders or the governmental leaders of an area was as long as you maintain this kind of civility toward us and don't cause problems and don't allow any rabble-rousers to stir in your community, we will, we will bless you as you bless us. It'll be a symbiotic relationship. But Rome was very clear. If there is ever threat of insurrection, any threat of coup, if ever in your country there's any sense that you would disturb, that you would compromise the peace of Rome, we will come swiftly and we will come violently and we will eradicate you, which is exactly what happened 40 years after the time of Jesus' passion in 70 when uh, Rome descended upon Jerusalem, destroyed the entire city, decimated the city. Um, and destroyed the temple. So the political leaders of Judea, uh, Jesus' contemporaries, 
were greatly concerned because one of the things that Jesus did was he stirred the zealots. Uh, the zealots were the extremists. I mean, there's always been extremism in religion, but the, and there's always, I, I rarely do you find extremist religious factions that aren't also compromised and mitigated in their integrity by political desires and um, um, predispositions. And the zealots of Israel were certainly that. They were a mix of uh, firebrands religiously, but also very zealous politically, because in, Israel, in the mind of these purists, Israel was called by God to rule the world. Israel was called by God not to be subjugated, but to subjugate. Israel was called by God to be the center of the world to which all nations would bow. And these zealots believed that affirmatively, and one of the things they believed was that one day, per the prophet's one day there was going to come a there was going to come a messianic figure and that messianic figure would come with power uh, that messianic figure would be an apocalyptic figure with god on his side and the angels swords ablazing that messianic figure would restore israel to its idealized probably over idealized golden age of the davidic solomonic period a thousand years before they hung their hats on that Many of them were such separatists that they were, um, they were often pushed to the margins of society and they would live in extreme areas. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls from the late 40s, those Dead Sea Scrolls that were a fascinating find that put us in touch with scripture, scriptural texts hundreds of years older than any extant manuscripts we had up until that point, literally gave us. Remember that, Lee? Uh, were you born then? 48. You weren't born in 48. You were born, what, 52? 34. 34. Yeah, you were there. But Nag Hammadi, those Dead Sea Scrolls, um, gave us Hebrew scriptures that we had never had before. All we ever had was Greek translations hundreds of years after. And so, th but that community, the, the Dead Sea community at Quamram was uh, a zealot community. Uh, that kind of community was the community that John the Baptist lived in, the man who came heralding the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Those communities um, were such purists that they would not live within the cities. They would not even go to the temple because they believed the temple had been so defiled. Uh, they did sometimes raid the cities. Some of them were called dagger people. And in the name of God and with the hope of Israel on their heart, they would come in and often in radical forms uh, execute uh, priests and rabbis. There were bloody invasions such as that. And interestingly, as Jesus began to perform miracles, these groups of people, like the zealots, laid claim to him. Even a few of his disciples had zealot connections. They were politically in the party of the zealots. So Jesus had them even in his inner circle. They laid claim to him, and they called him their horse, and they hitched their wagon and all of their dreams to him, just knowing that he was going to be the Messiah that would do the job that they believed God uh, had given the Messiah to do. And so Jesus not only appealed to the zealots, but he had been in Galilee in the north country, and he had performed so many miracles there that at the Passover, when the Galileans came down with everybody from the Mediterranean rim to celebrate the Passover, when the Galileans came down, one of the things that they buzzed about was this man named Jesus. 
And in the air at that time in Judea was this notable miracle he had performed just three weeks before raising Lazarus from the dead. So you have all of these stories of miracles and, and there, there's just this fomenting thing happening in Jerusalem. And it is so disturbing the religious leaders because they believed if Rome got wind of this man stirring the multitudes, they are going to come and they're going to cut our head off. As a matter of fact, during the Passion Week, that's one of the things that the high priest said in his appeal uh, to have Christ crucified. He said, is it better for our entire nation to die or this one man? It is better. Even if he himself is a good man, it would be better. Even if he himself is not leading these rabble-rousers, but if he is stirring them, it would be better for him to die than the entire nation. So that's the setting. So Jesus hung out in the Transjordan region. That's where he was when Mary and Martha sent the servant and said, would you please come and heal our brother Lazarus? And Jesus' disciples said, you cannot go. You'll be killed. We'll all be killed. But ultimately, go he did. Lazarus is raised, and now it's the Passover, and things are hot. And the Bible said that Jesus was down in Bethany and Bethphage at his friend's house, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and one day abruptly he looked at his disciples and he said, I want to go to Jerusalem, and I want to ride in on a donkey. And this cryptic, strange scene, he tells his disciples, I want you to go to a man's house, and when you see the donkey tied there, I want you to walk into his yard, take the donkey, and if the man says anything, just tell him the Lord has need of it, and he'll let you go, and we'll return it later. Why a donkey, many people ask. Well, it was, um, this is probably understated, but in the simple form, when a king would go into a city, a king would often choose between two forms of entry. He would choose either a steed or a donkey. And you can probably figure out if a king came into a city on a steed, he was either coming in with uh, the with the spoils of a war, and he was returning to his people, and he was celebrating uh, the booty, the, the spoils of that war. Or if a king came into a city that was not his, on a steed, he was probably there to make war. If a king came into a city on a donkey, then that king was coming in peace. That king was coming prone and vulnerable, and it was an olive branch of sort. And so the Bible says that as Jesus came into Jerusalem, somehow word got out that he was coming, and the people who were gathered there, probably Jerusalem was glutted with at least a half a million people for Passover, all of them began to line the streets, different groups, different groups who had different hopes, different expectations. They began to line the streets, and the Bible said that they were caught up in this frenzy of emotion, and they literally began to take off their outer garments, their robes, and they threw their clothes onto the ground. He was holy. He was so revered in their mind that they wanted to sanctify the ground with their own clothing and, and not even allow the hooves of the donkey that carried him to be corrupted by the soil. And, and so there was this, this uh, paved road of clothing and they took palm branches and they began to wave them and they began to quote in good Jewish form the Hallel Psalms, the victory Psalms from uh, their ancient days, the psalms that would laud a king. And they begin to cry, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at that moment, as the disciples watched Jesus arrest this crowd, as they watched Jesus stir this multitude, the disciples later that evening went to Jesus and said, this is about to happen. And they began to position themselves. Those closest to him, the Bible said, in the wake of that, that Sunday evening, they began to argue, Lee, amongst themselves, who was the greatest. Uh, James and John's mother even got involved, and she had a sidebar with Jesus, and she said, this is about to happen. And when it happens, would you allow one of my boys to sit at the right hand and one of my boys to sit at the left hand? In other words, would you put them on your cabinet? Would you make one of them a vice president and the other a secretary of state? And as they, in their minds wrestled with what was about to happen. I mean, in, in their minds, they had been watching this exponential growth, and now Jesus literally, just one more miracle, just pull a rabbit out of a hat, walk on water, do something, and, and you're about this far from dropping Rome to its knees. And the Bible says, even that evening, Jesus, in response to their positioning, Jesus tells those closest to him, I am here, I have come to Jerusalem, and I must needs suffer. And their hearts sank, and they argued with him. The text even says that they rebuked him. And on that Monday and Tuesday, Jesus spent with those closest to him, disappointing them, correcting them telling them everything that they didn't want to hear, saying to them incredible words, like one day when he was going back to Bethany, overcome with his own emotion, the Bible said he turned around and looked at them and said, can you, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism wherewith I'm baptized? This bouquet of his death. And the Bible said they were stymied, stupid. I suppose the message of Palm Sunday is this, to get right to the point. Somehow, Jesus went from this crescendo, this apex, I mean, this zenith moment in his ministry to five days later being unceremonially or unceremoniously murdered, unjustly murdered by the very people who had lauded him. And it is such a ridiculous caricatured story to think that a group of people could do what they did on Sunday and then do what they did on Friday within a week. How could the temperature and the disposition of these people toward this political horse that they were tying all of their hopes and dreams to, how could they so with such caprice and fickleness, how could they murder the guy that they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, just a few days earlier. And I suppose the point is this, and I suppose that you've already interpreted the point. The point is that we have a tendency, whether it's with God, our messianic figures, the people in our life, life itself, the human tendency is to project onto 
God, to project onto our messianic figures, to project onto those that we want to complete us, those things that we want to complete us, the way we want life to be. We have a tendency to project onto those things all of our hopes and dreams. And often we become blind to the voice of those things, the desire of those things, those ones. We often don't want to hear them suggest what they want to be or who they are because we have a plan for their life. What's the old campus crusade statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, we often reverse that and we love God and have a wonderful plan for God's life, don't we? And when that plan, when that Messiah, when that Jesus doesn't turn out just like you thought he was going to be, there is the tendency in us, and this is a harsh word I know, but there is the tendency to crucify, to crucify those, to crucify even God. I remember I was sitting in a little town in southeast Minnesota called Winona, and I was sitting there, I was up speaking at a church, and I was sitting at a, a, a bookstore there in Winona, and a man sat down beside me, and we engaged in a conversation when he, there in Minnesota when he heard my King's English. He was automatically arrested because he knew I was from somewhere like London or somewhere like that. And he asked me where I was from, and I said, well, I'm from Arkansas. And he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here speaking at a church. And he said, really, what church? And I told him. And he said, I went there for years. I said, well, are you going to be there this week? And he said, no, 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 I haven't been there in many, many years. And I said, well, um, do you go to another church? He said, no, I haven't been to church since I went to that church. I didn't press, but you could tell he wanted to talk a little bit. And I said, well, if you don't mind telling me what happened. He said, that church... um, was a Pentecostal church back in my old Pentecostal days, and he said, we had a doctrine called the faith doctrine. Well, I knew it well. And Michael, the faith doctrine was that if you have enough faith, you know, God's always going to do what you ask God to do. And it was taught clearly. I grew up in that world where we just knew that if you had enough faith, God would do. God was like a magic wand, a genie in a bottle, so formulaic. And our our church was a, a faith movement church, and he said, my wife and I are three-year-old child um, one day we noticed was bruising and uh, the preschool where we were taking our child even turned us into DCS because they were finding all these inordinate bruises all over our little little girl's body and he said thank God they did because it the DCS worker when they discovered of course there's no abuse here they'd seen it before and within weeks they knew it was leukemia And he said, we spent the next three years from her three-year-old days to her six-year-old days. He said, we spent the next three years with um, IVs and chemo and uh, abscesses and curtains and nurses and um, a gangrenous sore on her little hip and... And then we finally laid her to rest. And he said, in that window, I, I fasted one time for 21 days because we were told that if you, if you had enough faith and if you 
and, and he said, I fasted for 21 days. He said, at one point, I did a, a juice fast for 40 days. And he said, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And then we buried our little girl. And he said, more than, more than her died that day we laid her to rest. He said, something inside of me died. And he said, a part of that was my faith. And he said, on that day, God died for me. Because somehow, he said, I had to reconcile that either this is my fault, and if it is my fault, then if, if all the fasting and prayer we did was not enough, then who is this? I'll never forget what he said. Who, who is this SOB in the celestial sky who would set up some kind of an economy you know, so if I didn't do things right, I mean, who would set up an economy like this? And he went on to say a few other things. He, he said, I, I was told that maybe God took her to teach us some lesson. And he said, I thought, well, if God's taking her to teach us a lesson, what was her abscesses and gangrene and pain and nausea. What was it teaching her? That three-year-olds are so dispensable that God can torture them to teach us some valuable lesson to cure us of our shallowness? He said, no, I finally figured out that God was dead. But then he said, you know what? I spent the next three years of my life railing on God and railing on the church and railing on all of it and then one day it occurred to me, I must believe in God because you cannot be this angry at something that you don't think exists. And he said, during that window of time, our older child fell ill as well. It wasn't a terminal illness, but it was a very protracted and injurious illness to him. And he said, one day I was coming home from the hospital and he said, it was just too much. And he said, I pushed the button to the garage door. I was coming home to get some clothes and go back to the hospital. Our kid had been in the hospital for three months, the same hospital where we had lost our daughter. And he said, as the, he said, as the garage door went up, he said, I began hitting the steering wheel and cursing. And he said, I was talking to whoever was listening, but especially if there was a God, he said, I called him, her, it, every name in the book. And he said, I remember hitting the steering wheel until my, my knuckles began to bleed. And he said, blood began to splatter the windshield. And he said, I just kept doing it because somehow it sublimated the pain that was in my gut to my hands. And it was a relief. And he said, I screamed. And he said, I finally slumped over the steering wheel. And he said, whether it was audible, I don't know, but he said somewhere in my heart, something said to me, that is the first time you've talked to me in a long time, and I want you to know I love you. And he said, at that moment, my life, my faith, began to piece by piece rebuild. He said, it is not far enough back together and it may never be far enough back together because he said I don't know if I believe in the institutional church but 
he said, I am now, never forget what he said, he said, my heart, not my brain, but he said, my heart is constructing another view of God and life, and it doesn't have anything to do with refined theologies. It's just a piece-by-piece reconstruction, and that's where I am. Don McCullough, president of San Francisco Theological Seminary, a great Presbyterian minister, wrote a book called The Trivialization of God. The subtitle of the book is really worth the book, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. And in that book, it was actually McCullough's dissertation that he turned into a book for his PhD. In that book, McCullough talks about all the ways that we, George Bernard Shaw said it, but I think he got it from Pascal, God made man in God's image and humankind has returned the favor and made God in ours. And in the book, McCullough talks about the God of our country, the God of our political party, the God of our nation, the God of our cause, all of the ways that we conscript God, enlist God. Rick Warren said years ago, instead of Instead of asking God to be on our side and to get involved with what we're doing, we should find the divine currents of life and get involved there. But instead we conscript and enlist God and pull God. The reality is Palm Sunday and any wisdom literature in any religion, the only way wisdom literature is worth its salt is if it extends beyond the realm of just a history lesson or a theology lesson. And I can actually say to my 12-year-old, okay, this text, so what about this text? Well, what I can say to my 12-year-old is be very careful, be very careful not to turn Jesus or religion or God or life, not to presume that it's always going to be exactly what you want it to be. Philip Yancey wrote a book years ago called Disappointment with God. I've thought a lot about that title through the years. I meet with people quite often who are disappointed with God. Um, Often in those moments when I meet with people who are disappointed with God and the deal hasn't turned out, life hasn't turned out the way they thought it would and God hasn't performed uh, like the, the rubric, the equation that they thought God was supposed to perform by, I often ask people who are terribly disappointed and forfeiting their spirituality and just chunking it all, I ask them, Tell me a little bit about this God that you're losing faith in. And about 90% of the time, after they explain this God, Don, that they're losing faith in, I generally say something like, well, thank God. Because I don't believe in that God either. That God is an idol that has been created religiously in your own mind, but nothing about that makes sense to me either. And that kind of a God doesn't, deserve to be believed in. The reality is we still do today what they did on Palm Sunday. We still have a tendency, we still have a tendency to turn God, Jesus, church, life, the people in our life, to impose upon those things what we want them to be. But the beauty of Jesus is he did not allow himself to be enlisted. And I think that is so indicative of God, the divine, whatever you want to call it. There is a current to this universe and you can beat your head against the wall of that current, but it's going to be, it's going to be what it is and who it is. And at some point, even Jesus wrestled with this, which is interesting. The disappointment of the crowds, um, 
I think Jesus understood very well because the Bible said even as he got closer to that moment, there's this text full of pathos uh, later that week when the Bible says that he looked at his disciples and said, would you go with me out to Gethsemane where they often went? And he said, would you go with me? And he took them and he set the 11 at one spot and then he looked at James, Peter, and John and said, would you go with me a little further? It's really a beautiful picture. He left the multitudes, he took the 11, he set them and then he takes the three a little bit further and he sets them down on a rock and there's this wonderful line. He sets them down on the rock and he goes a little further. I mean, there's, it's really a beautiful picture of life. There are, you know, there's a certain amount of people who can go with you this far and then a few people who can go with you intimately even farther and then maybe one or two that can go really deep into your journey. But there's always gonna be that part of your journey no matter how important community and people are where you have to do what Jesus did and the Bible said he sat down even those closest to him and he went a little further. There are places in your spirituality nobody can go with you. There are places in your work that you have to go alone. And he went a little further and then this incredible moment, the Bible says after going a little further, he stumbled being in agony and he fell on his face. That's a profound picture. He stumbled being in agony and fell on his face. And as he fell on his face, he was such, in such turmoil inside, he began to claw the ground of that olive press called Gethsemane. And the Bible said that he prayed this prayer and said, God, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he didn't just say it once, and in passing, the Bible said in great anguish for an hour, he prayed, is there any way around this? Is, is there another way my life can turn out? Because I, I, this is hard, and it's not what I wanted, and it's not the way I thought my life was going to turn out. It's not. And after wrestling for an hour, the Bible says he couldn't take it, and so he went for comfort, and he found his disciples sleeping, and he woke them up and said, could you just watch? Just keep your eyes open. He didn't even ask them to pray. He said, just watch with me. Reminds me of Years ago, when Stan Jr. and I were alone, those first few years of his life, um, he slept in the bed with me, and I think he slept there for himself and probably as much for me in those lonely days. But that little guy and I slept in the bed, and he became very afraid of the dark. And I remember one night when he was about four years old, I had him in bed beside me and I reached over and I turned the light out and he began crying and he said, Dad, are you there? And I said, of course, bud, I'm here. And he said, are you really there, Dad? And I reached over and I took his hand and I said, yes, bub, I'm here. And still inconsolable, he whimpered through the darkness and he said, Dad, are you looking at me? And I rolled over in the dark Wendy and I looked through the dark and I couldn't see him but I looked to where I knew he was and I said yes buddy I'm looking at you and he said would you keep looking at me until I go to sleep I said I'll keep looking at you until I go to sleep I thought about that are you looking at me Tommy Jesus looked at his disciples and he said I don't need you to pray don't need you to get crucified I just wish that you would go with me and keep your eyes open and watch me and for another hour, God, if there's any other way for life to turn out, if there's any way this cup could pass from me, 
And after an hour, he goes back. Now the second time, they're asleep. And then in the, a third hour, the Bible said in the third hour, his agony became so great that in the absence of human consolation, somehow the heavens were kind enough to send an angel to him. That's quite a picture. And for Lane, an angel came down, and the Bible says the angel comforted him there. And then there's that kind of interesting text. The Bible said he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Some people say that that was just a metaphor, that his sweat was so profuse it was like dripping blood. Some medical professionals say there actually is the capacity of the cardiac sac to um, erupt. And actually there is the capacity for blood to come through the pores in severe agony. And so there's all of that. And then finally, after that, he comes, he finds them asleep. And this is a really astonishing statement. He looks at them and he says, sleep on. Rise, let us be going. Obviously, to say sleep on and then immediately rise, let us be going. He wasn't talking about physical sleep. He was talking about spiritual slumber because that's exactly what they were doing. But in that alone place, the one who disappointed so many himself was facing disappointment until finally he had beaten his head against that grain of the universe and it broke his heart and after three hours he whispered have you ever you ever been there with life it's not going the way you wanted to it's not turned out the way you planned the idyllic visions of your young life so disappointed now but there's that heartbreaking moment when you realize as, as, um, as tough as this is, as much as it's not what I wanted, it's mine. And this is what I have now. And if I'm going to have anything else, I have to start here because this is my reality. And there was that moment where Jesus' heart broke sufficiently that he whispered after three hours of arguing, three hours, he whispered, nevertheless, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And submitted to the process of life being a little different than what, or a lot different than what he had longed for. So, not only is he the disappointing one, he's one who faces his own disappointments and struggle. And the reality, and I suppose this is the last thing that I would want to say to you about this Palm Sunday theme the reality is, and I, I think within the Christian faith, we have a wonderful word picture for this. The reality is, whatever God is and whoever God is, um, the certainty, the acuity, the accuracy that religious groups like Christianity feel that they have is, is I think, an unwarranted hubris and an unhealthy pride. The mystery that used to drive me nuts about God and the realities of life, now I hold very dear and I'm very grateful for. Um, because God, as much as I, I do feel to some degree that I experience God and know God, God also in, in many ways is still a vast mystery to me. Maybe an unfolding mystery, but a vast mystery. And, and the reality is, I, I think in this window of Passion Week, and we're soon to be celebrating Easter and resurrection. And then, and then the mood will shift. The Lenten mood is supposed to be this march toward Jerusalem, this facing of the vicissitudes and reality of life. 
And then on the other side of Easter, we'll begin to celebrate what new life means and how resurrection can happen out of death. But for now, the reality is, I think the greatest commission of Jesus, you know, we always call the Great Commission when Jesus, the resurrected Christ, looks at his disciples and says, go into all the world, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teach people about me. That's, we call that the Great Commission. But I think the greatest commission was on the other side of the resurrection when the first person to Jesus, Mary Magdalene, met him. You remember this beautiful story. She thinks he's the gardener and she's complaining about the fact that Jesus is not in the tomb and somebody's stolen his body and she's talking to Jesus but she doesn't know it's Jesus because her eyes are so filled with tears. And that's the other thing. Sometimes your eyes can be so filled with tears that you can't see even the one that has come to help you. Like my little German shepherd when she was hit by a car and I went out to get her. She was still alive and she was the love of my young life at that time. She was my running buddy and I went out and there she was underneath the car and when I went to pick her up, she was hurting and my heart was breaking and I was crying but when I picked her up, she immediately bit me. And I knew, I let her hold on. It didn't even bother me that she bit me to the bone because that's what happens sometime when you're hurting. You're like the disciples when they were out there on the boat and they saw Jesus walking on the water and the Bible said they thought he was a demon. Even God can look like a demon. Jesus can look like a devil when you got pain in your eyes. Sometimes the prism of tears clears things up. Sometimes the prism of tears causes you to th see things wrong. And the Bible says Mary was hurting so bad that she couldn't see Jesus and Jesus couldn't take it so he sent her this little uh, hint and he just said her name. He said Mary and when he did she whispered Rabboni <laughs> and her heart melted and she did what we all want to do. She dug her fingers back into him and said, you got away from me once, you got away from me twice, you're never getting away from me again. And as she put her head on his chest, wrapped her arms around him and said, I'm never letting you go. The greatest commission Jesus ever gave in those post-resurrection days was when he looked at her, Linda, and said, let me go, Mary. Great religious leaders like Jesus do not come to be worshipped Great religious leaders, I don't think, come to build churches. I don't think they come to start religious movements like Christianity. I think the great religious leaders come humbly to lead people to become who they are, and then they do exactly what Jesus did. They look at you and they say, you're going to do greater works than I've done. And you're going to be the body of Christ. And they don't come to give you a God to worship. They come to give you a life to live and they come to give you a Christ to become. And Jesus looks at her and says, let me go. And she says, I don't wanna let you go. I like you just like this. Jesus said, I will never become to you what you need me to be if you cling to me the way you want me to be. And you know what I have found out in my Christianity? At the heart of Christianity for me, a Christianity that's worth believing because I came to the end of my Christianity a few years ago because I could not find in this faith something to believe in. There were too many toxins in the water that I had been drinking. And I appreciated the water because the water hydrated and kept me alive, but there were so many toxins that the toxins were beginning to make me sicker than, than the water was making me whole. But ultimately, Christianity shifted for me when I began to see Jesus differently. As one who is forever empowering and pointing us to go to Jerusalem, to be filled with the same spirit that he was filled with, and to become the body of Christ. 
And I, I think the way I would say it as I conclude this Palm Saturday message is this. What Jesus taught us on that Palm Sunday and in that Passion Week and in the surprising days of death and resurrection is that whether it's your religion, your God, your Jesus, the precious things in your life, hold them gently. Hold them in such a way that they have the ability to slip out of your grasp. Don't concretize your theologies and your doctrines and your faith so strongly that you end up restricting the very Jesus who has come to save you in so many ways. Let go of me, Mary. I thought about Brian McLaren's book, Generous Orthodoxy, and how he in that book said, there are seven Jesuses I've known. And Jeff, I got to thinking about it the other day. I wrote down in my 50 years of Christianity, because I was a in utero Christian like a lot of you. You know what that is, right? I came out uh, a Christian. But I wrote down over the course of these 50 years eight distinct Jesuses I've known. And as I look back, I don't disparage any of them. Each of them, as Anne Lamott said, were like lily pads on the bog of doubt and fear. They sustained me until I outgrew them. None of them could sustain me forever, and then I would go from one lily pad to the other, lily padding my way across until I finally found the verdant pad of faith on which I now rest. And something tells me it might even be a lily pad. And you really want to do Jesus right? Don't fix him on who he's always got to be. Hold him gently. And it just might be that the best thing he ever tells you to do is let go of the Jesus you know so you can find the Jesus you need. That is a beautiful take, I think, on faith. Can you say amen? Let's close our eyes for a minute and just meditate on these things before. With our hearts still, our minds in complying, thinking about the ways that we've been disappointed the expectations that we have made mandates, the hopes that we've turned into fixed constitutions. We are grateful, God, for a faith that is fluid, a spirituality, a religion like Christianity that has the ability to flex with the soul, for a God that is ever unveiling, healing. And I would pray that even in this room, if there are blisters of disappointment, if there are tinges of bitterness and hurt, that sweet Christ, you would come to us like you came to my friend in Winona, Minnesota. You would come to us offering us reconstruction for our deconstruction offering to put pieces back together that perhaps we could have never imagined, offering to become something that we, that we could have scarcely ever known or projected. And help us to leave off with the fickleness of demanding hosannas that often lead to the horror of evil crucifixions and undue death. May we find 
May we find you again anew and anew and anew and anew, ever unfolding. We thank you for this text. We pray all of this in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Jason Turner, are you going to take the offering? First thing I want to say is if we have any guests, there should be a gray card uh, in front of you in the pew. Please fill that out so we know that you're here. Um, If you are not receiving our emails, uh, that's a good way to get on our list as well. To our online attendees, I know that there's a lot of people out there who can't make it on Saturday night. We love having you. We know that you're uh, out there watching. You are important to us as well. Um, This past week, uh, Ron sent out an email that I wrote while I was on vacation, actually freezing in Phoenix, if you can believe that. And uh, I just want to say thank you uh, on behalf of our church for how you guys stepped up. it was amazing to see this past week uh, the response to that. And I just want to reiterate that uh, we need to keep that up. Um, as I drove in today, I actually came from the south, which is odd for me. And, and it was interesting that on the sign out front, uh, it says, give and receive with a grateful heart. And I think both components there are so important. Um, And as much as it is a blessing to give, you receive so much when you do that as well. And I hope that you experience that today. We have amazing staff, uh, Stan, Matt, Lisa, Ron, uh, that we want to take care of and we need to take care of. Uh, They're doing good things for us here. And uh, it's, it's such a great message that we need to keep getting out to this community because I know that there's people out there who want to hear that and believe in that and believe in